2020, WBSN presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg, Matt Costa, and Evan Russo. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa, and Matt Moniz along for the ride. And we have an action-packed show for you tonight, beaming to you live from our Fairhaven studios. We're going to talk with Bud Hopkins, who is one of the foremost experts in the world on UFO encounters and UFO abductions. He'll be joining us on the phone in just a little while. We'd also like to hear from you. Hear your paranormal stories, your ghost stories, your alien encounters, your questions, your theories, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Phone lines are going to be open for the entire show. Feel free to call in at any time, uh, whether you want to talk about ghosts or whether you have a question for Bud Hopkins or, or Matt Moniz or, or even Matt Costa and myself. We're here to answer any of your questions. And uh, we'll also touch upon the week and weird a little bit later on as well. Some strange stories of uh, things that have been for sale on eBay lately. We talked about it the last few weeks uh, with uh, Penny Dreadful and also with John Zaffis. Evil talking Bay. About, yeah, Evil Bay. <laughs> talking about haunted items that were for sale. Uh, this week we're going to talk about some things that aren't quite haunted, but still just as weird. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, you can also purchase uh, anything you want from us on eBay as well. Maybe we'll put our souls up there someday. That might be a bad idea, though, because, you know... I thought we want to make money. Yeah, that's true, too. I don't think it'd be really of value to anybody, but then again, you know, there's that one guy that likes to collect them. I have some chewing gum that looks like Jay Leno. Do you, really? Yeah. With, like, the big chin and everything? Oh, yeah. Yeah, does it tell the same lame jokes uh, from 1987? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Already been chewed. Already. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's me, Jay Leno, ABC gum. Hey. All right, that was a very bad Jay Leno. But you'll have to forgive me. I'm a little bit tired. Uh, had a interesting night last night, an interesting morning, uh, taking my latest uh, sleep study. Uh, we talked about it before in the locker room. Myself and Evan Russo have both undergone sleep studies in the past. Uh, I took a little bit different one. I took one for narcolepsy. And let me tell you, folks, if uh, if you think it's something that you might have, you definitely want to get it checked out, but it's a, it's a rough test to go through. So bear with me if it seems like I'm falling asleep uh, on you. I hope not to do that. So... And, of course, uh, I have both the mats along with me to make sure that I stay awake. So, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, if you'd like to talk with us. We'd also like to remind everybody that on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, you can catch links to everything we're going to be talking about here tonight. Bud Hopkins' site, the Intruders Foundation, which we'll get into later on. Also, links to all the weak and weird stories, some interesting photos that you might want to see related to those stories. And, of course, that's the spot all week long where you can download the show, where you can access the stream of it uh, to listen to on your computer, where you can find the information of how to get it off iTunes for your MP3 player, and how you can contact us all week long. You never know when you're going to run into a ghost or or get some uh, alien UFO sightings on film that you want to send to us. You can uh, find everything out on SpookySouthCoast.com. So uh, why don't we take a break because we actually have a whole bunch of commercials tonight. Uh, sorry to say, folks, but we're going to try and, and get to some of these tonight. And uh, on the other side, we'll have Bud Hopkins on the line right here on Spooky South Coast. There's a touch of madness around here. 
paranormal? Is that what they're calling your kind these days? Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. And uh, we're about to be joined on the phone by Bud Hopkins. Uh, His first encounter with a UFO was back in 1964 in nearby Truro, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Since that fateful day, Bud has gone on to investigate well over 700 UFO cases. He's also a world-renowned painter and author with art hanging in Paris, the Guggenheim Museum in New York and in England, and uh, taken together his three books, Missing Time, Intruders, and Witnessed, are widely regarded by researchers and skeptics alike as comprising the most influential series of books yet published on the abduction phenomenon. In 1989, he created the Intruders Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to finding out the truth about who these visitors are and what exactly they want from us. And so uh, he is joining us right now. Good evening, Bud. How are you tonight? Very well. I'm very glad to be with you. Well, we thank you very much for taking time out on a Saturday night to join us. Well, it's uh, <clears throat> a thing that is always important for me to do, that people uh, receive information that's uh, uh, legitimate and solid in the situation where with uh, the tabloids and the naysayers and the... Uh, Debunkers, there is so much false information floating around. It's hard to get the truth out. And that's uh, that's what we're all about here is trying to get the truth out, trying to get those questions asked and to find the answers. Right. And especially, you know, we're pretty close to where you originally had your first uh, UFO encounter. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was uh, in relation to things since then. It seems uh, very trivial, but it was a daytime sighting, and three of us were... <clears throat> driving on Route 6 to uh, Provincetown uh, from Truro and uh, saw around 5 in the afternoon this uh, uh, metallic object uh, more or less hovering over the um, near the highway, uh, which is just outside Provincetown. And uh, we began speculating as to what it was. And as we, it looked lens-shaped from uh, higher ground where we first were, and we got down to the lower ground and looking up at it from below, it was circular, had no details, no doors or windows or anything, and no lights, and um, uh, it was at one point swallowed up by a cloud that was blowing by, small clouds, uh, and uh, you could see it inside the cloud momentarily, like uh, the silhouette of a ship in the fog or something, and then the cloud blew by, and there it was, and uh, we got driving slower and slower looking at it, and quite intrigued. Uh, having no interest in the subject or no knowledge whatsoever. And uh, suddenly the thing just shot across the road and shot out to sea. I hit the brakes and we all jumped down and at that point uh, started talking about what this strange thing was we saw. But it was a very formative event for me because, um, you know, it was clearly a craft of some sort. It seemed to be intelligently controlled and uh, was able to hover and maneuver at great speed. So uh, it was some advanced technology of some sort. And if it wasn't ours uh, or the Russians or something, then we had a major problem on our hands that I had never thought about before. But, I mean, at that time, uh, ufology was kind of an infant science. I mean, what kind of resources did you have to try to find out exactly what it was that you saw? 
Well, at that point, I began reading about it and and got some books and so forth. When we went on to this party we were headed for, I told some friends about it, and and they said, oh, yeah, two years ago, I I saw this thing right above the trees. I had these windows moving along, and I said, you know, I got several sighting reports. And I said, what is this? I mean, is this some sort of real thing that is some kind of an underground that's not being talked about? And um, I ended up writing a letter to the Air Force a year later to report it. <clears throat> and what was interesting was uh, in the reply I got, uh, which contained the usual boilerplate, the Air Force is responsible for looking into blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it, it said there was no evidence that these, that fighting uh, such as this are a threat to national security threat. But the last sentence was, however, if you should ever see anything like this again, the Air Force requests you to report it immediately to the nearest Air Force installation. Well, that is a little bit strange. You know, they're telling you, uh, well, don't worry about it, but if it happens again, we want to know. Call us right away. <laughs> exactly. And, and, of course, you know, the Otis, uh, Otis, the Otis base being on the Cape, I mean, it, yep. it, it was in very close proximity, so... Yeah, uh, it's kind of not coincidental that that would happen either. No, no, it's it's uh, it's true, but uh, <clears throat> that was what got me into it originally, and I didn't do any investigations for another eleven years. I'm sort of a slow learner, I guess, and then I I began looking into it seriously in 1975 because uh, a man who had a store across the street told me about this thing landing near his car in a park right across the Hudson River from Manhattan. And um, these figures got out and took soil samples. And uh, when I, it's a long story, so I won't go into it, but when I looked into it and investigated the account, I found uh, another witness who'd seen the whole thing from another point of view. Hmm. And uh, we found a lot of physical evidence, and I wrote an article about it for the Village Voice newspaper in New York, uh, which elicited a lot of letters, and some of the people writing in told me that they, had periods of, that, you know, they, they saw this object at 9 o'clock or something, and, or a similar object, and um, then they can't remember how it left, and uh, suddenly it's 11 o'clock at night. And so we were into these missing time cases, uh, which uh, uh, were my first dealing with uh, the possibility of abductions and led to my first book, Missing Time. Well, we're going to get into some of that in a little bit, but right now we have a, a caller on the line, I believe, that would like to uh, ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Bud Hopkins. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I had a question for Mr. Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Um, I had two occurrences that I wanted to um, tell him about and see what he thought. Mm-hmm. Um, one was about 1965. My grandmother was driving on New Plainville Road, which is behind the Bedford Airport, mm-hmm. and something, some kind of light or Something bounced off her car, and it blew out, like, all the light bulbs and all, like, the wires, like, it shorted them out. Mm. Um, That was right around the airport. And the other one that I wanted to talk about was um, my other grandparents lived on Old Plainville Road, which is also right behind there, and that was in 1978. They had a strange sort of, I don't want to say burnt circle, but it was, like, a 20-foot circle in their Mm -hmm. field. And it was about like a ring. It was like a foot around. And it had also three, like, impressions on the outside of the ring, mm-hmm. like something had landed. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what he thought about that. 
Well, it certainly seems that both of the things you're telling me uh, deserve investigation, uh, even though it's a little difficult to do uh, 40 years later. <laughs> but I, the, the first thing about the uh, the electrical problems in the car, um, did the car then stop? And, and if everything was burned out, how did you get home? What happened? Um, I wasn't I wasn't there at that time. This was obviously before I was born. But I see. Um, I think it ran bad, and they, you know, like some. Obviously, when the light hit it, they must have, you know, checked it out and saw what was wrong with everything was just not working right, I guess. But the well, it would be very interesting to know, uh, is there anybody who was in the car then who's still around to talk about it? Yes, my grandmother. She's still around. Well, I would ask her, and, and maybe my friend and colleague, Matt Moniz, could help you with this, just to find out, uh, you know, what actually happened with the car. I mean, whether... Uh, it would run after this. What things had to be replaced? Uh, what was uh, what was said, you know, by the mechanics and so forth? Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, uh, I mean, there, there may be some, of course, straight mechanical cause, electrical cause that uh, I'm not aware about. I'm not one of those guys that knows all about cars. Right. <laughs> but the point is, it, it should. It, it certainly seems uh, intriguing. Did you, did you say that there was a ball, that there was some sort of light beforehand? Or? Yeah, some sort of light that um, bounced or hit the car. But it's strange because they're both in the airport area. It just seems bizarre to me that, I don't know, just coincidental maybe, but... Well, in the, in the first case, I mean, my initial first skeptical thought would be ball lightning as a as a possible cause which i know that that uh, you know to bounce off the ground would be extremely yeah. unusual for ball lightning but mm -hmm. that would be my first uh well that's certainly a possibility that's what we have to find out what actually happened to the car you see you, you can't really you know d diagnose these things in the, with a, a thumbnail description uh you can just say that what's what you present in this case is intriguing, and therefore uh, it would would suggest it needs some investigation. Mm -hmm. And if your grandmother's around and was in the car at the time, we can see what she re recalls. Yeah, but I, I thank you very much for calling in. Okay, thank yes, you. Thank you very much. Bye. But I'd be interested in the soil. Yeah, that. Well, that's the other thing because that's going to be harder to. Just you know, I mean, at least the car there. If it got towed in or whatever happened, there might be some kind of record, but the soil is probably, uh, I mean, she said that was 78, I believe. Yeah. Well, it's a long time ago, almost three years. What can you guys tell from the soil? Well, I can test for various other metals and stuff like that. If there are different metal concentrations as compared to the control samples, that will tell me couple of different things depending upon like the other samples I showed you before a couple of shows ago mm -hmm. metals won't go away yeah. it doesn't make a difference if it's 20 years or 2500 yeah. years that'll still remain the same well one of the things Matt of course you know in, in some of the cases uh, that I've looked into the soil at the landing area has been uh, as it were baked uh, the soil was uh, desiccated it, it will not uh, support uh, life, the grass or any plant life dies, and it, it turns to almost rock. And obviously some kind of energy has, has right. affected it. And that would be uh, probably uh, that would probably be something that isn't there anymore. So, uh, But at any rate, they're both uh, intriguing things that can be looked into.
And and before we took the call, you were uh, speaking on how you first got into uh, the possibility of abductions, <clears throat> and you said that a lot of you, you uh, found out about missing time. Yeah, well, people were. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, the, the issue was, of course, I had read about the Betty Barney Hill case, and uh, in 1975, when this all came about, uh, there were a number of UFO researchers that took abductions seriously, although uh, the majority didn't. And uh, in 1975, there were maybe 10 or 12 uh, cases that had been looked into. The Travis Walton case happened around that time. Which, of course, uh, but, was the basis of Fire in the Sky. Yeah. The but, but, that, but the point is that uh, uh, the, the most uh, startling thing that, that I think that I uncovered, one, which was one of the reasons I was led to write the book, was that uh, uh, through interviewing people who had been contacting me and going over the letters and so forth, um, I realized that this phenomenon was very widespread and that people were unaware of what was happening, that they knew that they, they, they had periods of missing time, that they came home with a, a particular kind of cut after, uh, that they don't remember how they got uh, on their body after uh, they had sighted the thing above the car or the field or whatever it was, and that there were uh, a myriad uh, suggestions that this is widespread. And no, everyone thought it was extremely rare if it happened at all. And um, I also discovered that people, uh, and wrote about in that book, that people were abducted again and again, starting in childhood. Uh, everybody thought, uh, even who, the, those who took it seriously, that this was a one-time thing. You were just unlucky enough to be in the wrong place. And um, uh, the, uh, the the series of particular cuts and scoop marks and so forth that um, indicated that samples had been taken from from people, um, which we were not aware of. The more I looked into that, the more I found that this was a very common thing in many, many cases. So uh, I wrote the book to, in effect, alert the, uh, the UFO community and the public in general that, that uh, this is, A, very real, and B, very widespread. And this is kind of where the tide turned a bit uh, in UFO sightings, where it went from something of you know unique curiosity and interest to... You know, people started to develop almost a, a fear because of some of these stories that came about. Well, a fear because, you see, um, as David Jacobs said, uh, the first 30 years of, of investigating UFOs, uh, none of the investigators um, accepted the idea that a UFO had an inside, let alone that there was perhaps intelligent <laughs> creatures of some sort inside there. I mean, we were all busy... Uh, as I put it, trying to get the license plate number of the getaway car, we hadn't figured out what the crime was, what was actually going on. It's a great way of putting it. And uh, once uh, we began to understand that the focus was on us, you know, rather than us being just interested in what these things were that were flying around, uh, it, it, the, there was a change because it, it, the whole thing got a lot more ominous all of a sudden. And it seemed more like we weren't just... Uh you know, a, a sightseeing stop on the tour. Absolutely. By and being the destination point, it, it kind of changed things, too. Absolutely. And, and one of the things, of course, is that uh, there, were, there was virtually no interest that the UFO 
uh, the craft or the occupants, whatever you want to say, uh, that they uh, exhibited almost no interest in our equipment, our stuff, our computers, our weaponry, our, uh, you know, atomic uh, facilities or whatnot. I mean, um, there was some some minor interest apparently shown, but the real object of their interest was us, was human beings, was the physicality of human beings. And, and uh, that, that gets scary. And it's especially interesting that they, you know, for the most part, brought people aboard the craft and didn't go out. And, you know, you don't find out reports of them exploring a weapon silo. No, no, no. Or no. even an art museum where they might find some of your work hanging out. <laughs> it's more just if they're interested, like you said, in, in the human beings yep. specifically. And the procedures that were taking place inside the craft when people were taken uh, had all of the uh, earmarks of an of organized program. Uh, not just uh, sort of uh, curiosity and, and finding out things, but that they were doing things again and again and again to uh, to people as if they hadn't worked out what they were after. And of course, what it it seemed to, to me that, and I think it's generally accepted in the UFO community, and it's what I wrote about in uh, Intruders. What they were interested in was uh, our basic makeup, our DNA, our genetic uh, uh, constituents. And um, they uh, that that seemed to be the real uh, object of their interest and and their sample taking and so forth. So uh, it, it it was never technological. It was never that they were here to you know. There was a, a very funny story years ago about a guy in a motorcycle being followed by a UFO, and uh, this was before the era of people taking abduction seriously, and. Um, uh, this thing was above his motorcycle, and he was going faster and faster. Well, now, and then he said the thing left. Uh, nowadays, we would assume that there's a possibility, a very good possibility, that that was an abduction case. But at the time, uh, where a lot of it was unremembered, but at the time, people weren't thinking that. So one of the uh, investigators said, "Well, maybe the aliens are interested in the top speed of a Harley Davidson." Hmm. Which, of course, is the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> they can do better than that, you know. Well, I mean, even aliens might want to have some fun too. I mean, now, if this is if this is truly a, a Darwinistic pursuit and an effect, uh, what they're doing is you know tagging human beings the same way you know zoologists would tag a rhino out in the wild. How come there isn't uh, you know more of a looking for willing subjects instead of just taking people against their will? I mean, well, where, where they that, find it? I'm sure there's a wealth of people that would be more than willing to take part in a program like that. Well, that's uh, you know, that's a hard question to answer. You should be interviewing an alien instead of me on that. We've one. been trying, but they're not answering <laughs> right. our calls. But uh, at any rate, the thing is that that we really don't have answers for questions like that. Uh, obviously, it's been covert all along, mm -hmm. and it starts in very early childhood, and and it's kind of hard to ask a. Uh, six-month-old baby if it will give permission to be taken and used. But, I mean, just in your opinion, what would be, is it the advantage of being able to watch humans in their natural environment? And Well, uh, I, I think that's part of it, but essentially, <clears throat> I think they want their subjects to be uh, very tractable, that they can handle them without uh, problems, and, and uh, so therefore they just take them and paralysis is involved to, to render them uh, uh, really unable to fight back, and they just do this with great dispatch. Almost all people who have had abduction experiences will say uh, there was no wasted time. They knew just what they were doing, and they did it quickly, and, and nobody sat around and, you know, 
chatted or or there was no waiting like your HMO office or anything like that. I mean, this was just boom, boom, boom. They they know what they're doing, and <clears throat> speed uh, is of the essence, apparently. And uh, beyond that, it's very hard for us to know why they do some of the things they do. Well, my roundabout point being that where some people uh, have these memories uh, apparently repressed after they've been abducted, mm -hmm. uh, what I'm wondering is if maybe, as you said, they're trying to do this as quickly and as quietly and as unnoticed as possible, like almost like it's their intent to have us not realize they're doing it. Oh, yeah. And I, then it's just an anomaly that some people are able to remember it. Well, it is a, it is a covert uh, operation. There's no doubt about that. And you see, even the process of screen memories, which is something I also wrote about in, uh, in Missing Time, my first book, <clears throat> which we just kind of uncovered, was that a person could remember, as one of the people I wrote about, being in the woods and talking to this beautiful deer. This deer had these huge black eyes and was just standing there talking to her. And, of course, as we explored this and uh, the psychologist was doing hypnosis, it turned out not to be a deer. But they were obviously uh, putting imagery in that individual's mind uh, to kind of cover up what they're actually doing. So the, the covert nature of this has been there from the beginning. Hello? <laughs> no, sorry yeah. about that. I just had a, uh, when you mentioned that, I just had like just a strange reaction to, I mean, I've, I've wondered about some stuff in my past, and when you mentioned the deer, it just kind of brought something flooding back. Right. So I, I apologize for that. No, that's okay. <clears throat> but at any rate, that, I mean, we, we know, see, one thing about the screen members, we know that they're, uh, to some extent, imposed from the outside, because if there are two people in a car, uh, and they come upon, say, uh, uh, a six-car pileup of wrecked cars um, that, that it turns out were not there. I mean, there's no, nothing in the paper. There was no wreck. Uh, but they remember all these lights on these wrecked cars. They remember these two individuals remember exactly the same imagery, even though, um, you know, there was a UFO on the ground, not, not six wrecked cars. <clears throat> so, therefore, we, we can deduce that they're uh, able to somehow shoot into the brain excuse me the brain of their of their um, specimen here the people are dealing with uh whatever images they want to we we had a guest on a few weeks ago uh christopher Pittman, who is the massachusetts representative of mufon mm -hmm. and he described a similar incident where he had been camping and both he and his friend were outside the tent you know watching these lights in the sky dance around mm -hmm. while at, at the same time his girlfriend was in the tent apparently being abducted Mm -hmm. And all they can remember is watching those lights flash in the sky, and they remember no motion or anything from the tent when it happened. So, yeah. unfortunately, it sounds like that seems to be the pattern. Well, it, it, I mean, they, they are able to do amazing things in controlling uh, thoughts and behavior of, of uh, human beings. And that's another one of the more ominous sides of this. Hey, Bud, I have a question. Sure. What is the most common similarity between abductees, and what do they share? Uh, in what way? Do you mean that they're they're between themselves? Yeah. But, uh, in other words, as is people? it a na yeah? Is it is it a nationality <clears throat> type? Is it more than one uh, race of people, or is yeah. it? Well, Matt, very quickly, it's, it's really across the, the the whole range of, of humans. I mean, I've dealt with uh, people from Japan, from 
Turkey, African Americans, Hispanics, you, what, you name it, whatever it is. So they're looking for a biodiversity. Well, at least they, they're getting a biodiversity, whether that's what they look for or not. I don't know, but it, there, it, there's absolutely no uh, similarity there at all that I can tell. Um, there also seem to be fairly equal distribution of, of um, males to females. But uh, in terms of the personalities of abductees, I mean, the things that... Uh, the psychological tests have, have turned up is that uh, the uh, abductees who have been tested thoroughly by psychologists uh, are uh, certainly sane and normal, but that they have three, uh, what turned up were three uh, areas of deficit, as they put it. Um, they all have the, suffered from low self-esteem, even when these people were extremely talented and, you know, attractive and all the good things. Uh, they all had a certain um, ambiguous feelings about their uh, physicality and their sexuality. They didn't feel like they owned their bodies completely the way, you know, let's say, a great uh, gymnast or basketball player feels like he is or she is one with their body. It's as if they're sort of outside their body in an odd way. And the third thing is they have a lot of trouble trusting people and, and uh, relationships. And the psychologist did the test said, well, if they had had these experiences, uh, these are precisely the kinds of psychological after effects one would expect. But then conversely, just to, to bring up a skeptical point of view, conversely, couldn't you say that those are the kind of people that would also be looking for attention of telling one of these types of stories? Well, or? see, the attention question could be answered right away. Do people want attention? Uh, you know, have these experiences? And the answer is no. <laughs> uh, I've talked to numerous uh, TV and media people who will say to me the most exasperating thing is to try to get anybody to come forward uh, for a program to talk about his or her experiences. So these uh, people aren't calling up the media saying, hey, guess what happened to me? No, they, no. <laughs> the opposite. Don't use my name. I don't, you know, I can't. Uh, very, very nervous about this. See, this is a thing which gets nobody anything. You know, you get only ridicule. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I've long since come to warn people, even when a few people were willing to come forward, I said, you know, you got to watch what you're getting into because, um, you know, marriages have broken up, people lost their jobs. I mean, it's, it, there's no gain for it at all. So uh, one doesn't, one doesn't run into the idea that these people are looking for attention. The opposite. Okay, I have another question, bud. Mm -hmm. Do the ETs ever make mistakes? All the time. <laughs> Not all the time, but a lot. Um, it's a very good question, Matt, but people uh, have reported over and over again uh, alien mistakes, like they're taken out of their bedroom at night and, and in the morning their pajamas are on backwards. Um, a, a woman was, um, she remembers driving along with her boyfriend in the car and they see this thing above the car, and the next thing she knows, uh, she's standing outside the car, doesn't remember having gotten out, and uh, her clothes are somewhat disarranged, and when she gets home, very confused, uh, with just some fleeting memories, she discovers her earrings are in backwards. The posts were forward rather than back. Um, <clears throat> people have been um, put in the wrong rooms, uh, in the wrong automobiles. Recently, uh, there's a case in Australia where a woman was 
picked up in one uh, town and uh, put down two hours later uh, in, a, in another city that was actually a nine-hour drive away. Mm. And she was put down in the middle of nowhere in her nightgown with no uh, slippers or anything. She covered with mud and confusion and horror. She managed to find the police. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a very rare occurrence, but mistakes are made all the time. So they're not perfect. They're not perfect, that's for sure. And um, I, I shouldn't say they're made all the time, but uh, and, and some of them are, are kind of funny in the sense that a, a woman I worked with woke up and she had been she'd gone to bed wearing her new Victoria's Secret nightgown, and when she woke up, she's wearing this big bulky green man's T-shirt. I feel bad for the guy. That, know, the, the guy that I wonder what he was wearing when he woke up. Yeah, it just seems re- re- reminiscent to me of when I was younger, and I'd sneak out, you know, my dad's special video. I have one word: tequila. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I used to sneak out his special videos and forget to rewind them to the right spot, and that's yeah. how I used to get caught. So, I mean, yeah, it sounds like a similar situation. Oh, that kind of thing happens a lot, and uh, it's uh, uh, it's quite amazing because, you know, people have a tendency to uh, think of them as, as you know, uh, Hopefully, as godlike beings, or fearfully as as uh, demons of some sort, and yet they seem to bumble and make mistakes the same way the average human being can do that from time to time. Okay, then um, have they ever left any evidence that could have been tested? Well, excuse me. Uh, they've left lot, there's lots of physical evidence, but uh, you know, in terms of. Uh, see, I never use the word proof. Uh, proof is uh, evidence to me is uh, is what you need to establish proof, and it, it, it's a question of how much evidence it takes to prove something. And there is still something like ten or fifteen percent of the population. The evidence not is not persuasive that the Holocaust occurred. So, uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a mixed bag. But if you have a situation where a person is, uh, is taken, let's say a child is taken, it disappears. And um, uh, the person, the family calls the police. These things have actually happened. The police are searching the the area. Uh, the neighbors report seeing a craft uh, earlier uh, right over the house. Uh, and then they find that the tree branches on one side of a tree have been all snapped off from the top down. And that the ground below, the soil has been baked into this uh, kind of rock-like form in a, in a perfect circle. Uh, I mean, you're getting here pieces of evidence on top of pieces of evidence uh, that cumulatively are extremely important, even though uh, uh, there are uh, uh, many scientists would say, well, that doesn't persuade me, but it it certainly should get anyone's attention whether they want to be convinced or not. In, in other words, no uh, hubcaps falling no, off, say, no, we from Zeta Reticuli or whatever. We don't have, no, we don't have a license plate from, you know, and you know what's always kind of funny and sad, the late Carl Sagan just say, well, why don't these people show up, uh, you know, with, why don't they grab a cocktail napkin or something and run out of the craft? Here are these people who are, uh, the clothes have been removed, they're in a, a totally altered state, they cannot move, they're paralyzed, they're scared to death, and there's nothing really lying around in some way that they, uh, on top of the fact that they have no pocket to put it in. And uh, so we, we have, we have a, a number of things that are quite, Compelling, like I have X-rays of, of metallic objects inside people's heads, which uh, the neurosurgeons will look at and say that they don't know how that thing got in there. Um, and 
way to get it out without endangering the life of the person. It would suggest some kind of implant. So there's evidence of all sorts, but uh, as to whether or not we have some little object with bells and whistles and uh, weird isotopes and everything else that that all science would agree is uh, non-terrestrial, we don't have that yet. All right, bud. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, bud, uh, and on the other side, we'll talk to you a little bit more about these abduction cases. We'll mm-hmm. also get into the Intruders Foundation and uh, your new abductee care services. So, okay. And we'd like to hear from the listeners. If you have a question for Bud Hopkins about UFOs, UFO abduction cases, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. It's a real thing. A radio signal from another world. That's what I call a close encounter. I can't. Not as long as the truth is out And we're back here on Spooky South Coast. We are talking to Bud Hopkins, head of the Intruders Foundation, and the best source you could ever hope to talk to about UFOs and UFO abductions, aside from extraterrestrials themselves. We'd like to hear from you about any possible experiences you may have had. 508 for Wareham and the Cape. If you've had any kind of encounter, we'd like to hear about it. Matt, I think you had a few more questions that you want to bring up for Bud. Yeah, sure. All right, bud. Um, how often are people visited in their lifetime, if you know? Well, that's an extremely hard question to answer, Matt. The, the problem is that uh, we really do believe that people uh, are only remembering a part of the experiences that they have uh, That for complicated reasons, which I really can't go into, but, but the, the, we have evidence that People have had experiences that they remember absolutely nothing of at all. Uh, they were remembered by other people around them, their disappearance and so forth. So we, it's very hard to judge. Uh, some people seem to have many experiences and, and uh, uh, great frequency, and other people's it doesn't work out that way. But uh, I've gotten experiences that people have had into their 70s, although that's rather rare. Uh, so uh, it, that's a really tough one to answer. But one thing, Matt, just on another point, is that, uh, you know, I have a, a summer place on the Cape, and uh, uh, so I've worked with a lot of people who have had abduction experiences on the Cape, and I've worked with um, three different people who have had abduction experiences from Provincetown and uh uh, from uh, Dennis, um, uh, two, uh, another three or four people, and uh, also from uh, Hyannis, a number of people. So uh, I, I've, I've probably looked into uh, oh, 15 abduction cases uh, from Cape Cod. Wow. Mm. And, and one thing that is... is- Certain, at least in in your experiences, that when these people are abducted, the body physical yes. is taken. Yes, absolutely. Okay, because they're they're, they're having... gone. The police are looking for them or whatever, and and the parents or the whatever the uh, the, the mates the spouse, uh, they're definitely gone. And of course, when they come back, if they have a uh, a scoop mark where a layer of flesh and a small circular pattern depression has been taken. 
Uh, it wasn't that way when they left. So this is done when they're undertaken. This is not some sort of uh, etheric body thing. This is the real, the real business. And, and as you said uh, previously, they've also come back sometimes a little bit something extra in them as well. Are implants a, a common occurrence? Well, uh, <clears throat> we think so. Uh, the um, <clears throat> excuse me. The one thing that, uh, as I said earlier, that uh, is gets my attention is when something is inside the skull uh, that's metallic of a certain size and I have, as I mentioned, uh, both uh, x-rays in some cases and uh, at least uh, if it's too late to get the x-ray um, a um, uh, medical statement from the uh, uh, radiologist about where the thing was located and what its size was because they have no idea what they are uh, nor do we have any idea what they're for, I should point out uh, do they seem to have a negative effect on the person, or are they just floating around in there? Or? Well, I, it, no, they don't seem to have a negative effect. And, and uh, interestingly... Are uh, they all in the same location? No, there? no, they're in different places. But you see, if something's in somebody's foot, say, as opposed to being inside the skull, uh, you know, the skeptic could say, well, he just stepped on a tin can when he was six or something, mm-hmm. and whatever. Uh, even though uh, some of those objects that have been removed um, uh, and studied that were in an accessible place in the body, uh, they have unusual characteristics, but not unusual enough to persuade uh, other scientists or not the kind of thing I would take the court with, you know. I mean, it, it just, you hear these people that, you know, have supposedly had surgery and the doctor leaves scissors in them or, right, or, yeah. or you know sometimes it, there's just something that drops in there by accident they don't realize till later on but it sounds like these are intentionally left for whatever purpose yes they, that, that definitely seems to be it and also uh, in a number of cases uh, they which have been removed where the object was removed there was no scar in the area where the thing was found in the body so we didn't really know how it got in there you know there's no mark uh, if a doctor does an appendectomy and leaves scissors in there, there's going to be a hell of a scar on the body. So, uh, well, I mean, are these people when they board these vessels, are they physically taken like as if you would board an airplane, or are they beamed up as we've no, seen they, in sci-fi they're, movies? There's some kind of process of beaming them up. We have no idea how any of this technology works, mm-hmm. but they're but they are physically paralyzed and they're floated in. So this, these objects could just as easily be beamed into their body That's somehow. That's exactly by right. And uh, now half of this, of course, makes absolutely no sense according to our science, uh, to our physics. But the people can be floated right through closed surfaces, uh, through a closed window, a closed uh, wall or door or something. Um, we have no idea how that works, but it's been reported just, you know, literally thousands of times. So there's no real obstacle in a, in a wall or a door or anything like that. We don't know how they do that. Uh, uh, we don't know how they control people's actions, but they can do that too. So, and if they're uh, taking um, uh, if they're taking over samples from a woman, it's it's often with a needle through the, the navel of the lower abdomen, uh, which uh, leaves a very tiny mark. Uh, but there are cases where they take, have taken sperm samples from men, and, uh, of course, the amazing thing is that the men have been somehow artificially, uh, through, the, through the nervous system, um, 
excited enough for this to occur. And um, we don't know how they can do that because the, the man under those circumstances is obviously terrified and unable to move and unable to do anything. And yet uh, they seem to be able to control selectively aspects of the uh, whole central nervous system. Well, I've always wondered if, if that type of situation is directly related to the uh, the incubus and the succubus of mythology, because I, I seem to think you know these creatures would have more of a reason to inseminate or to you know uh, retrieve sperm from a male than a spirit would. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, see, the problem with the succubus and you know the whole thing is that uh, we have a tendency to assume when we find a resemblance that we are, have also found a re, a, to a relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, uh, one UFO investigator said, oh, well, the, uh, uh, the uh, Irish uh, leprechauns are small, large-headed, and this and that and the other thing. And so this is just another version of an old folktale. And, um, or the know, old folktale could be a, a previous version of the story that we know now. Right, but I, what I used to say to this individual was, yeah, it's amazing. I said, because... When you look into abduction cases, you find that they always take place uh, with, a, with a rainbow, and there's a pot of gold always at the base of the rainbow, and, of course, these uh, little gray people live under toadstools. And he said, well, no, no, not, the, not that part of it, just the part that I think is similar. Uh, you can't selectively do that. In other words, to say that uh, some folks, uh, folk tale uh, has an aspect here, an aspect there that seems related or similar, it doesn't prove relationship. No, this is a really... Uh, a very different and very distinct phenomenon. Okay, well, we're we're coming up on a on a news break here in just a few moments, and in the in the second hour, if you can stick with us, we'd love to talk to you about the Intruders Foundation and what the work is that you do there, as well as your new abductee care services program. Yeah, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, it's just it, it's going to be tough for me to to go further here <laughs> uh, with this, uh, just because of, of time concerns on okay. my part. So I, I may have to say goodnight at this point, and uh, reluctantly, because it's been very interesting and, and uh, very intelligent questions from uh, both of you, and, and uh, very helpful, and uh, I really appreciate this chance to do this. Well, then, before we let you go, we thank you very much for joining us, and we'd like to tell everybody that they can find out more about Bud and the Intruders Foundation at www.intrudersfoundation.org. You can find out more about his books as well there, and uh, we also have a link to it on our site, SpookySouthCoast.com. But if you go to his site, you can find out more about these programs that we're talking about, about the Intruders Foundation and their four basic goals uh, with investigating these cases. And... Uh, and now, we know about your other three books, Missing Time, Intruders, and Witnessed. Real quick, but uh, you have another book coming out? The latest out book is, yeah, uh, is called Sight Unseen, and uh, Carol Rainey is my co-author. And that came out a couple of years ago. It's in paperback now. And uh, it's uh, probably the farthest out thing I've ever written, but it really has to do with uh, new aspects of the phenomenon that I hadn't really wanted to deal with uh, until recently. Uh, I've only written four books in... 30 some years and it's uh, because I never would write one until there was some major thing I had discovered that I felt needed to be brought to public attention. 
All right, and, and that book is uh, coming out soon? Or? No, it's already it's, it's out. It's out already. It's so. unseen. It's uh, in paperback now. Yeah, it was hardcover for a while. All right, well, we thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you in the future. I'm sure we shall. Be sure to check out Bud's books and his website, intrudersfoundation.org. You can find out more information. I'm sure you can also get the books from Amazon.com as well. So coming up on the news on the second hour, we'll tell you about the week in weird. We also want to hear from you. 508-996-0500 508-291-0500 Be back in a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast. Presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg, Matt Costa, and Evan Russo. And welcome back, hour number two of Spooky South Coast. We had a great first hour with our special guest, Bud Hopkins, from the Intruders Foundation. Be sure to check out his website, intrudersfoundation.org. Now for the whole second hour here, we're going to do the Week and Weird in a few minutes, but we'd like to throw it wide open to you, all the callers, all the listeners out there. We want you to call in and tell us your stories, theories, questions dealing with the paranormal, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500 for Wareham and the Cape. And uh, we're going to get right into the phone calls before we get into the week and weird, because we have a caller standing by right now. Hello? Hello. How you doing? You're on Spooky South Coast. Hey, how you doing? you got to cut us a little slack. We're still new with this stuff. <laughs> oh, it's all right. Hey, um, this is Steve from Nepa. Uh, hey, how you doing? About a month ago. I'm doing pretty good. How you doing? All right. All right, cool. Uh, I, I noticed things are really hopping over at your website. Yeah, we've we've actually been really busy. Um, we actually we actually got some evidence posted. Did you notice that? I, I saw that. Why don't you tell everybody uh, about the investigation you did and what you found? Wait, well, all first, right. well, first, tell them about your organization. All right. Well, first off, we're uh, the New England Paranormal Association. Um, we've been we've been on the hunt for about three years now. There's there's been about probably nine or ten serious members. We've had a couple people hang out with us. We have connections with all different sorts of people from. Uh, from TAPS, I, I, I'm good friends with Steve from TAPS, and we, we've gone to all types of uh, different meetings with people, and we've, we've worked real hard. I mean, we're all relatively young guys. We're all in our 20s, mm-hmm. and uh, we've been working real hard, and we, we go out a lot. We try to investigate the local stuff around the South Coast area, and we actually um, we go a lot out in the uh, Rehoboth area and, and Pond and everywhere else, and we actually, uh, this, this past couple weeks, we were at um, one of our members' houses that he grew up, his mother's house, because of um, something that he's always noticed at his house. He always felt like there was a spirit there. And um, so we, we went down. He believed it was in his basement. So we went down to his basement with uh, with an EVP, which is a recording device. For, mm-hmm. for and um, we went down there, and we, we laid down an EVP. We were down there for about a half hour just uh, trying to communicate with it. And... Um, we we uh, got to the point where he decided to verbally provoke the spirit, and um, we, we reviewed the evidence. We we heard like an unidentifiable noise. 
So we put it on our computer and magnified it, and it turned out to be something that we cannot completely explain whatsoever. And that's posted on our website at nepainvestigation.blogspot.com. So if you want to check that out, that's uh, something that we found actually in a house in New Bedford. It was our, it's basically our first solid evidence, and we have that posted on our website. And of course, we got into a little bit of a of a discourse over the last couple of weeks because you know you'd come on the air with us. Uh, you called in when we spoke to Gail Hicks, and you had mentioned that you guys were looking for evidence. And I had made the offhand comment on the air saying you should be looking for experience more than evidence. And and we've since cleared things up uh, as to what we're talking about. And it sounds like you guys are really very rooted in the correct procedures of how to do this. And I apologize for lumping you into some of these groups that just go out there with some, you know, equipment they got off the internet and, and head right into it. You guys seem well, like you've really yeah, done your. Well, that's something that originally a few years back that's what we were into. We were just going by what we saw on TV and whatnot, and um, we actually took took the initiative and did a, a ton of research, and we, we you know we, we we researched everything we possibly could. And I, 98% of the time, we go out, we don't, you know, we don't get evidence whatsoever, but the evidence is basically what drives us, what makes us want to go back out. And just finding this alone is just, is just amazing to us because it helps us, you know, want to do more. And um, the fact that we actually found something is amazing, and we're more than willing to share that with the world, you know. I mean, as much as, much as there's anybody listening out there, I mean, if you don't want to believe it, that's all right. But you can check out our website, and we're a legit organization. We've been around for a couple of years, and we go a lot of places. And this is our first solid piece of evidence, and we're really proud of it, and we're more than willing to share that with everybody. Well, why don't we give your website address one more time for uh, everybody at home? That's NEPA, N-E-P-A, investigation.blogspot.com you want to check that out and, and how can people contact you if they want you to come and do an investigation we have our email addresses posted on there and it's a blog spot so you're more than willing to write a blog and um, we could easily talk that you know we could easily get in touch with anybody who wants to know um wants to talk to us you know wants wants us to investigate anything we're more than willing to because that's what we're all about so we're really excited to just if we can they need somebody if they people if there's people out there who think their house is haunted we will go and we have the equipment. We will check this out. We will do this for free. We, we do this just for the simple pleasures of ourselves. We, we enjoy doing this. And, and what exactly does your investigation incur for people that are, are going to invite you into their homes? Okay, well, to, to just be open, fully open about it, we show up. There's probably going to be from anywhere from five to ten of us. We will show up all together at the same time. We have our own equipment. We don't need anything but just electrical outlets. We have all types of electronic electronic devices to use to record any information. Um, all we ask is that we're allowed to take pictures and videotapes of rooms in your house. Your names don't have to be said. Your locations don't have to be said. We are more than willing to just investigate and, and just look. And if you don't want it to be publicized, that's, an, that's your own decision. We can just let you know personally. It's fine with us. We, we, just, want, we just want to go out and work. That's all we want to do. And, you, and you've recently uh, come in contact with Derek Bartlett and Capers. Uh, what exactly are they... Uh, going to do with your organization? Well, actually, we're going to have we're going to end up having a, to get in a meeting with them because um, they've actually taken a, a solid following to us. They you know they they heard the show and they 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 know that we're we're legit and we're not just a bunch of kids out there having fun. That we really seriously are really in, involved in this. And um, they actually told us that they're going to they're going to get in touch with us. And they actually said that. 
if they go out on any investigations whatsoever, that most likely we could work something out. We could come along and, and you know see how they do things, so we could you know get some more ideas about how we want to conduct our own uh, investigations. All right. Well, we thank you for checking in with us. And, uh, again, everybody can check out their website to find that information. We'll put a link up to it on SpookySouthCoast.com as well uh, All to, right. to make That's it a little awesome. bit easier. And i got a nice banner ad I'm going to send to you guys as well. Sweet. Thank you very much. And um, we'll be in touch with you next week and let you know what we've been doing. All right. Sounds good. All right. We'll talk to you later. Thank you very much. And uh, if anybody else has anything they'd like to share on the paranormal, 508-996-0500, 508-2910-500. For any questions, comments, theories, stories, anything that you want to share, we're more than ready to believe you. But right now, why don't we take a look at some of these stranger stories that you may not have heard pass across the news this past week. A little something we like to call The Week in Weird. The Boston Globe reports that a ghost hunting team out of upstate New York, known as Postmortem Paranormal Investigations, recently concluded that's a great name, isn't it? Recently concluded that the Colonial Inn in Concord, Massachusetts, is indeed haunted, at least in the infamous Room 24. While investigating the nearly 300-year-old inn, the group psychic Angel, Angel Perilla felt the presence of two female spirits and one male spirit. They also captured EVPs, which they say are the words later and help, along with a laugh or a sigh of relief. They also caught three orbs while taking photographs in the inn. All this evidence was verified by the Globe writer who was on site when they acquired all of this. However, after the Globe writer left, they had contacted him later on after the story ran and said that they had captured videotape of seven balls of light flying around the room, which the psychic said was seven independent spirits. A night in room 24, in case you're interested in staying there and checking it out for yourself, costs $295. That's $295 per night. But it's not just because it's haunted. It has to do with the fact that it's a king-size room with the fancy four-post bed with a great, you know, uh, scenic view in, in what is, you know, probably a pricey end to stay in anyway. Uh, but they do not publicize the fact that they have this haunted room. They do not tell people that when they purchase the room. But some people do go there with the express intent of going to that room. Some people think that the spirits in the room could be the former owner, Dr. Timothy Minot, the soldiers that he cared for there during the Revolutionary War, or even members of the family of Henry David Thoreau, who lived in the inn for a time. Now Matt's got some more stories for us. All right. A supposed Bigfoot print was found last month in Malaysia with... will be... Uh, will be subjected to a DNA test to attempt to determine whether or not the elusive hominid really exists. The print measuring 45.5 centimeters by 36 centimeters was found by paranormal investigators from the Malaysian television series Seekers on February 21st. A photo of the print can be seen on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. Of course, we have links to all these stories up on SpookySouthCoast.com just because a lot of this stuff requires some photographic evidence that you need to check out for yourself. Well, unfortunately, one picture we don't have on the site, but I'm sure anybody interested in the paranormal is quite familiar with it, is the famous photos of Nessie the Loch Ness Monster. Well, Scotland's top dinosaur expert has stunned the science world by claiming the Loch Ness Monster is actually just an elephant. Paleontologist Dr. Neil Clark thinks the Nessie myth is, quote, a magnificent piece of marketing that was thought up in the 1930s by a circus boss. Dr. Clark says the unexplained photos of Nessie could simply be the trunk, head, and back of a swimming elephant. 
He claims the phenomenon may have been started by circus impresario Bertram Mills in 1933 after he saw one of his elephants bathing in Loch Ness. Mills, who died in 1938, offered 20,000 pounds to anyone who captured the Loch Ness Monster for his circus, sparking international international interest. Of course... The theory behind that being that if it was indeed one of his elephants, nobody was going to capture it, so he wouldn't have to actually put forth the money. The greatest concentration of sightings at Loch Ness did happen in 1933 and 34, when Bertram Mills' reward was on offer and when his circus was around the Loch Ness area. But swimming elephants do not explain subsequent sightings that have been seen over the years since. Didn't P.T. Didn't P. Barnum offer uh, some money to find Nessie in the 1800s? I'm pretty sure that if... Uh, if if P.T. Barnum got involved in it, it was definitely fake. Stop it. No, come on. Stop it. He all is right. my idol. All right, this one's straight out of eBay. Forget all those rumors of Elvis being alive and now working at Burger King. He's now working for Office Depot now. Jenna Cage of California recently spotted an image of the King of Rock and Roll on a receipt for two laptops she purchased at her local Office Depot. The ghostly image contains very clear outlines of Elvis's lips eyes and hair. The receipt dated January 12, 2006 coincidentally marks exactly 30 years, 33 years to the date of Elvis's alternate Aloha concert tape January 12, 1973 that drew over 1.5 billion viewers and was the largest most, most spectacular concert of the King of Rock, rock and Roll ever. It also marks four days after the King would have been 71. Perhaps not coincidentally, Office Depot's new slogan is Taking Care of Business, which was also Presley's personal motto. Cage recently sold the receipt on eBay for the sum of at least $2,000. Well, of course, what can't you find on eBay? So actually, we have a photo of of a side-by-side comparison of Elvis and that picture that was found in the receipt. It is a little bit... uh, Strange, they do look uh, alike, but that doesn't mean that it isn't some sort of forgery. But we just throw it out there for you to check out. One story that is definitely for real is another eBay story. 21-year-old Asia Francis of St. Louis, Missouri, recently sold the advertising rights to her pregnancy for the sum of $1,000 to internet site Globat.com. That's G-L-O-B-A-T dot com. Probably shouldn't be giving them a, a free plug here on Spooky South Coast if they paid her a grand to advertise on her stomach. For their money, Globat will get a temporary tattoo for their business across Francis's belly and the rights to broadcast the birth via the Internet on their new site, DefyingGravity.com, which is going to be a website dedicated to strange and unusual marketing ideas. Hmm. Probably uh, not coincidental. The unmarried and unemployed mother-to-be, who is due to give birth any day now and will be induced later this week if she doesn't give birth on her own, naturally, is using the money to pay for her car. It's not the first time somebody sold ad space on their body. Of course, we've seen boxers do it to uh, casino websites and gambling websites before. But Andrew Fisher earned more than $37,000 last year by putting a corporate logo on his head for a month. And Michelle Hutchinson auctioned ad rights for her baby's clothing for $1,000 a month. And, of course, I'm a pretty big guy. Every inch of my body is available per sale. Just contact me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and uh, I will gladly sport the name of your business for a small fee. All right. Uh, seventh grader Jasmine Roberts might have might have a little trouble getting service at some local restaurants in Tampa Bay, Florida. After her award-winning science fair project resulted 
results were published in the Tampa Tribune. Little Jasmine's study concluded that the ice used in drinking water of several of the local fast food restaurants contained more bacteria, including some E. coli, than the same restaurant's toilet water. Jasmine tested the water at University of Florida's Moffitt Cancer Center, where she is a volunteer assistant. Now, of course, Matt Moniz, our science advisor, is with us, and uh, he is very familiar with the procedures of testing water. And is this something that would be uncommon to find a lot of these same bacteria in there, or is this something that well, is cause for concern? This is cause for concern. Uh, the type of testing I do, we also test all of the food for uh, large chain uh, fast food restaurants, mm-hmm. as she did. Um, finding bacteria in water is not uncommon. I mean, you can't get rid of everything. But finding concentrations higher than you would find in the the restaurant's toilet is a cause for concern. And let's not forget either, this isn't like your regular home toilet either where there's the frequent cleaning and, you know, your own right. personal bacteria. This is a you know, public well, restroom. Well, depending upon how good your housekeeping is, maybe it might be better kept. Who well, g- guessing if they're finding E. coli and other such bacteria in the ice, uh, I don't think it's that clean of a restaurant. No. Uh, so there is your look at The Week and Weird. Remember, you can find links to all these stories on SpookySouthCoast.com. You can also find our email addresses so that if you happen upon any of these stories during the course of the week, you can send them along to us and we'll be sure to give you credit. So uh, why don't we take a quick break, and on the other side, we want your phone calls about all things paranormal, 508-996-0500, Maybe you want to talk about some of these weak and weird stories. Maybe you want to talk about your UFO encounters. Maybe there's a ghost sitting there in the room with you right now. We want to hear about it. Be back in a few. Midnight here on Spooky South Coast, and uh, hopefully this show is a thriller for you out there. We'd like to hear from you, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Anything you want to talk about dealing with the paranormal? Have you ever seen a ghost? Have you ever seen a UFO? Have you ever seen shadow people? Uh, we're willing to talk to you about just about anything paranormal, and we have a call on the line right now. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast. Can we have your name and where you're calling from, please? Uh, Ken New Bedford. Okay, and what would you like to talk with us about? Oh, I saw a strange object actually last um, no, tonight in Middleborough. Really? Near the Rotary. It, you know, the place that was that, Dave's diner. That's what that was. It's the big shiny. Oh, you mean in the sky? <laughs> yeah. All right. It was uh, strange. You know, most of the planes you see at night, you see like the triangle form- form- uh, formulation of the lights. Like, usually. are you talking like a plane? You see that? Is yeah. That, you know, say usually when you see something at night? Yeah, the one light's in the front, usually by the front landing gear, and then two on the side by the 
side wheels, mm-hmm. but they're always configured with one in front and two in the back. Now this one was reversed. They were two in the in the front of the front of the triangle and one in the back. So almost like the plane would be coming at you, but there was no collision flash yet. All there was was three white lights and a pulsating red light, and it was going slow, no noise whatsoever. It's completely reverse of what the planes look like. Was the pulsating red light at the rear? No, it was dead center. So all three lights were in a row? No, it was triangle, actually two in the back. It was actually headed north, so two were to the front of it. And one was in center, forming a triangle. So if it was headed north, the the one that was in the point was pointing towards me, and two from left and right were in the front of it. And and did it seem to be following any sort of unusual flight pattern, or was it, you know, a straight line? Similar it was going to straight and very slow. Straight and very slow. I mean, in that area, there's a. Uh, I mean, you have the Plymouth Airport, mm-hmm. and you have, I believe there's a field in Marshfield as well? Correct. So, I mean, it's it's not uncommon for, for different craft to take off, but for it to be the opposite of what you'd expect to see in an aircraft does seem yeah. a little bit peculiar. Usually, you- like if it's small aircraft, they'll have the red on one side and the green flashing light. The only thing that was pulsing is dead center, and there was no collision like the strobe light effect. The one in the middle, the red wasn't flashing fast it was just slowly going on and off just in the middle and the white lights were steady so it was unusual because every night you you look up you can see five six of them at a time but they're always configured with the one light in the front and the two in the back this was reversed and did you say this was last night or tonight that you saw this tonight just around i'd say it had to be around eight o'clock and was there anyone else with you when you saw it or yeah, actually, I was with my parents. We were just getting out of a restaurant. We looked up, and I said, boy, that's strange because it's reversed. So normal, I thought the plane was actually coming this way if it was a plane because the point was facing to us. It was actually going backwards, and then I, then I noticed no strobe lights at all. What about the sound of the engine? Nothing, no noise. Well, I, I hate to bring this up because it sounds like I'm reaching at times, but that is... Bridgewater Triangle territory, this is true. where a lot of this stuff is known to happen. Uh, we'd love to have you get this report out to uh, to our friend Chris Pittman, who runs the Massachusetts chapter of MUFON, mm-hmm. the Mutual UFO Network, and and he loves to get all kinds of uh, all kinds of reports about UFO sightings, and he'll certainly take the information and check it out, and he'll call you know the appropriate authorities, and he'll let you know if he finds out anything. So why don't you shoot me an email, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. Just describe all your all your sighting again, and I'll forward it on to Chris, and, and we'll see if we can find out a little bit more, because chances are, if it's something that unusual, it sounds like you're a very astute observer here and that you may notice things other people may not, but there could have been other people that saw the same thing as well. Okay, I'll do that. Thanks. All right, thank you very much. All right, bye. All right, and if you have a similar story you'd like to share with us or any other story dealing with the paranormal, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We'd like to talk to you about just about anything. So, and, and Matt, is that something that you've heard before in your UFO investigations before? Have you heard of almost like this inverse plane? Yes, I've heard of uh, vehicles very similar in description where the, what would be termed the navigation lights, the lights that are uh, up front, and then you have a different colored light in the back that generally doesn't pulsate that is continuous. There are numerous different 
configurations. Uh, but and have, have any of them been dismissed away as something terrestrial? or? In some cases, yes. Uh, misidentifications of planes. Uh, and now planes have navigation lights in the wings, landing lights in the uh, lower gear. There are also, believe it or not, planes do have headlights. Mm-hmm. They're, they're mounted in the wings. Uh, there is also generally a tail strobe light. So you'll, you can have up to something, I believe it's like 16 different lights on an airplane fully lit. And generally all of those are lit when they're landing. But in general navigation, it's just the port and starboard running lights and one uh, navigation strobe. Is it possible that in that area of Middleborough near the rotary, uh, which is kind of like near the, I guess you'd say the meeting of 44 and, and 28, and 20, yeah. w- would that be part of the holding pattern for Logan Airport? Depending upon what date. Now, I work in Canton, and one of their landing routes goes right over the industrial park where I I work, and they change them every two weeks. You would have to check with Logan as far as to which pattern they're using. But um, if he's saying it's a small craft or something very low to the ground moving very slowly, Mm -hmm. chances are it wouldn't be uh, out of Logan. because it would be too small of a craft for them to have to deal with. Right. So... And it would be strange if this was some sort of UFO and it would mimic almost like, you know, an earthbound airplane. Uh, that wouldn't be the first time I've heard of it. I've I've encountered many, many pilots, both military and civilian, who have had uh, UFOs, as they call them, off in the distance. Uh, one pilot in particular told me of a story where he was flying. The, he noticed a bright yellowish orange object ahead of him the object came close to him he obviously saw that it was a round disc shaped orange glow around a solid metallic craft Mm -hmm. he said the craft all of a sudden started mimicking his strobes in other words it lit up in a pattern similar to his and took off at a uh, slightly faster speed and he said from a distance you wouldn't really be able to tell that this is something not from here as he put it and that it then changed color and just zipped off basically straight up and he was i believe he said he was somewhere at around twenty thousand feet at this particular occurrence so and you mentioned you know one of the things you can do is contact logan and check their flight patterns for the day but what are some of the other sources people can turn to to try to determine if this was something you know known not an unknown flying object but a known flying object well the faa is required to release any flight pattern of any any civilian air vehicle uh they're not obligated to release military but they can confirm or deny if a military plane was present Mm -hmm. And a military plane would be possible in that area. Yeah, would not be out of uh, realms of possibility, definitely. And so hopefully that caller can, can get us, we can get him in touch with Chris Pittman, who will do the due diligence to find this information out. Also, if you have any similar stories that you would like to report, you can always feel free to send them to us, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, Matt at SpookySouthCoast.com. We can get them to Matt Moniz or Chris Pittman, and we can find out a little bit more for you. What's going on? We're going to take a quick break right now, but on the other side, we'd love to hear from you. We have about 25 minutes remaining on the program, and we'd like to turn it all over to the listeners. 508 996 508-291-0500. About anything to do with the paranormal here on Spooky South Coast. 
Studios of AM 1420 WBSM, Into the Night and Beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. And welcome back. Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa behind the controls, and science advisor Matt Mooney's along for the ride. We want to hear from you, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And one of the things that we've talked about recently uh, on some editions of Spooky South Coast are the number of cemeteries in this area that have paranormal activity associated with them. And we, we talked to some callers who said they'd experienced things out on the Wolf Island Cemetery, uh, some people who said they've experienced things in the, I believe it's the North Cemetery here in Fairhaven or Central Cemetery. Where, it's wherever the uh, body of Millicent Rogers is buried. And one of the listeners has started her own website, the New England Legends site, which we have a link to on SpookySouthCoast.com, and she has been asking people to send in their stories, photos, any other kind of information about these sightings and cemeteries. So maybe we can help her out. Maybe you've had some sort of encounter. You can give us a call right now, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and let us know about it. Now, we've talked about possibly investigating some of these things on our own, yep. and uh, it's one of the things that we'd like to do in the warmer weather, uh, when it's a little bit more sane to be outside in places like that at this time. And uh, so we need all kinds of suggestions from people of places that we should go check out, be it cemeteries, haunted houses. You know, Even if you want uh, a serious investigation done, we have groups that we can bring along with us to check things out scientifically, and we'll just be along to document it. And, you know, who knows? Who knows what, we could, what could happen? I mean, we could get an actual spirit to join us. We could get... You know, maybe Elvis will come along someday if we can pull him away from his duties at Office Depot. And, of course, there's an open invitation for any uh, extraterrestrial being to join us at any time. And even some earthbound people as well. We're going to work on getting you some special guests coming up in the future. We're going to have on some members of TAPS to talk about the upcoming series of Ghost Hunters. We're also going to have Christopher Balzano, who runs the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website, which is another website where they collect a lot of the stories. Now, there's a gentleman out there who runs a website. I'm, I'm assuming he's a gentleman, based on the text of this site. Who runs a website, uh, hauntedlakeville.com, and it's all about the different paranormal aspects of Lakeville, which is a part of the Bridgewater Triangle, as we've talked about before. And it's a very interesting site. They have a lot of interesting stories and old photographs and, and things we'd like to talk about here in Spooky South Coast, but the author of the site is anonymous. So we'd love for him to get in touch with us uh, through our email addresses at SpookySouthCoast.com or right here on the show because we'd like to find out more about Lakeville. Of course, this show is called Spooky South Coast, so it's the entire area, anything that's ever happened from Westport to Wareham to Bridgewater to anywhere. We want to hear about it. 
And uh, one of the things that we've done in the past is check out the Millicent Library, and we hope to do similar stories for you in the future, put together some little audio packages of our experiences out there. Hey, maybe we don't come up with anything, but you never know. I mean, a lot of these groups go out there and investigate this stuff, and they could be on the right trail, but sometimes it might take that little bit of possibility of fame and fortune by being on the radio to get these ghosts to come out. So, And now, Matt, what you've experienced some things uh, of a haunting nature before. Yeah, um, I, as I told you before, uh, I worked at what used to be known as the Raven, which is now Shooters in Wareham, and that act- that particular building, I believe you know as well, has mm-hmm. actually a history of being haunted for a long time. It, it was a very strange haunting. Uh, not not an uncommon story through uh, through folk legend, but it is definitely uh, interesting for Wareham, yeah. to say the least. Yeah, considering the building's history and what it was before. It, I, at one point it was a, we'll say it, a, a facility for ladies of the night. Yeah, a brothel for all yes. intents and purposes. Well, you know, it's almost midnight, so I think we can say brothel on the yeah. <laughs> And, and this gentleman, because there used to be an airport behind there, this gentleman used to stop in when he flew into Wareham. Correct. And uh, he died in, what, was the 1920s or 30s? Yeah, it was, it was early on in the, in the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, while I was working there, I've, I had several occasions in which I had seen him by myself, being one of the people in there. Uh, but... The most interesting encounter I had with uh, this individual, I was standing out on the back deck. There were two people playing pool uh, right inside the room uh, in the back. And the, the back door was open. I was standing right next to another individual. As we were standing on the back deck watching the people playing pool, this gentleman walked behind the pool table and walked right through the wall. Where on the opposite side of the pool table. Mm-hmm. Now, all of us all saw it at the same time. I don't drink. I haven't drank in several years. And the various other individuals that all watched it with me had various blood alcohol levels and, mm-hmm. and stuff. And we all saw the same thing at the same time. So it's like, you know, something is weird going on there. Now, what I found out after the fact is the point at where he walked through the wall, there was no door there. But I found out from the owner that we did some rearranging. A door used to be there. Wow, very interesting. And, and one of the stories that I'd heard from uh, different people that had worked in the building was that uh, there was an upstairs, which was at, at this point in time was simply just uh, all heating ducts and air conditioning ducts. Uh, that's where some of my other encounters <laughs> I had personally. But ex- yeah. exactly, that's where he used to frequent when uh, when the women were upstairs working. So. It's it's definitely you know and, and I'm I'm guessing this is one of those hauntings where it's a a happy place for this gentleman and that's why he keeps going back a lot of fond memories yeah. there you know some some money lost but some love gained so maybe you have similar stories here coming up in the last few minutes here 508-996-0500 508-291-0500 and of course Matt Costa we've had some experiences uh, in a place not too far down the street from where the Raven was, the the Mill Pond Diner, and that's all, that? of course. We're, yeah, we're just giving commercials out here left and right. But, uh, you know, that's another place that's had a lot of activity, and that's only maybe a mile down the road. And I think that the whole South Coast area is 
prone to this type of activity, but it seems like that area in Wareham in general is is really a high concentration of activity. I mean, I live in uh, the Glen Charlie area of Wareham, which is my second time living in that neighborhood. And the first time, I didn't really have a lot of background in the paranormal and, and what was going on. But now the second time, I know that it's a, a very high concentration of activity in that area from battlefields from King Philip's War, from old Indian camps that were up there that were raided by uh, the soldiers in that war, and also from an old ironworks factory that used to be located on one of the ponds on Glen Charlie Road that exploded with all the employees still inside. So these type of stories, I mean, you, you hear this stuff all the time, and, it, and uh, you know, Matt drives me home uh, on the way home here because I'm afraid to go by myself, quite frankly, after hosting this show. And I always tell them, you know, look out your window as we go by because there's always stories about people that have seen things out there. And, of course, there's a great uh, series of books by a gentleman out of Middleborough named Edward Lodi. He collects a lot of these stories and puts them all together in a a great easy-to-read style and passes on all these legends from that area. And, of course, we hope to get similar stuff for the New Bedford area put out as well. You know, maybe we'll just have to start writing some books. There's another interesting little fact about that area you're talking about. Now, that's also the area where Wareham has the largest aquifer. It's a mm-hmm. large underground pocket of water that is constantly flowing from up Glen Charlie all the way down into uh, where where the water is uh, used right now in uh, Onset. Mm-hmm. So that whole area would naturally be charged anyway. Yeah, it, it, these, this type of activity really seems to center around water. And probably because of the conductivity level of water, as we spoke about yeah. last week, you know, it's it just welcomes in this type of activity. And as we all know, we're surrounded by water, you know, through the entire South Coast. So it doesn't surprise me that we're also eighty percent water. That's true too. That's true too. And even even uh, from beyond the grave, we're still attracted to it. So in the last few minutes here, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, if you'd like to share your own personal stories, you know, we always invite you to email them to us as well. If you don't feel comfortable talking about them on the air, you can email them to us and we'll be more than happy to read them for you. But we're going to take our final break and then when we come back on the other side, we'll wrap things up. We'll take any remaining phone calls that are out there and we'll talk to you about next week's show. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here with Matt Costa and Matt Moniz with me as well. And uh, broadcasting from our studios on 1313 Mockingbird Lane here on Spooky South Coast. <laughs> Stamp my foot, you know. My, you know, my dad always did a great uh, great Herman Munster growing up, and that might be where I learned to stomp when I get angry. So I like to stomp my foot and yell, no, no, no. 
Well, there's all kinds of topics that have to do with the paranormal, which we would love to talk to people about each week here on Spooky South Coast. We're going to just kick around some of these topics out there for you. And if you have any experiences with them, you can email us and we'll talk about it. If you have any experience, any expertise in these fields, you can also email us because we'd love to have you on as a guest as well. And this is a, a huge list provided to us by our science advisor, Matt Moniz, who's always on top of things for us. We thank you for that. No problem. And just some of the things that we can talk about here. I mean, alternative energy, alternative health, alternative explanations for things. I mean, this is something that's become very big in recent years. Also, ancient mysteries, which we talk about all the time off the air, which we're going to have to do a show about at some point. Also, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, astral projection, and astrology. Those are two things we haven't really touched upon very much. Of course, Bigfoot and other cryptozoological aspects uh you know cattle mutilations which hopefully we don't have too much of around here but i actually did investigate the case right here in fairhaven uh several years ago and and was it uh undetermined undetermined well we'll have to look into that because that also ties into something else that we plan on doing a show on in the future about cults a lot of times too when we find out there is an explanation behind some of these animal mutilations it's cult activity also, of course, we always want to talk to you about UFOs, crop circles, uh, anything of that nature. Uh, also, you know, ghosts are always a common subject here. We talked about demonic possession last week with John Zaffis. Uh, also, just, you know, magic. Uh, millennium prophecies. Uh, this list is huge. There's so many things we could talk about. And, and one thing that I notice, uh, and Matt pointed out as well, there's not a lot of uh, skeptical sites. Yeah. <laughs> not a lot of skeptical sites because it seems like people are more interested in proving these items than disproving. And I almost wonder if that's because as technology has become greater, it's easier to prove these things than it is to disprove them in some cases. Well, um, I am a skeptic by nature. I'm a scientist, so I'm trained to look at things uh, in terms of evidence, mm -hmm. what's presented for me. If if it doesn't have something that I can measure or look at or what have you, it, I can't. I can only take it as, you know, just an anecdotal piece exactly. to put it to put away. If there's something I can physically test, that's fine. Now, problem with most skeptics is, uh, I I I respect them, but none of them, and I can say this f pretty much straight up. None of them really go out and test anything. What they do is they take what's been done by other people and Monday morning quarterback it. Basically, it seems like there's just a closed-minded nature. Like they're just they're, once they've made their decision that this stuff can't exist because there's no scientific principles to prove it, they close their minds to the possibility. Of they it. prove that their brain is even smaller than their reproductive organ. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like he's calling out some skeptics. So we welcome them here. Uh, if you're skeptical and you like to challenge some of this stuff, feel free to contact us as well. I mean, some of the other things we can talk about are parapsychology. We are actually going to have on Lloyd Auerbach, who is, uh, I guess you could say, a professor of parapsychology. Uh, he is going to join us in the future, uh, and he will talk to us about a lot of these uh, parapsychological sciences, such as you know, astral projection and remote viewing. Uh, also, we can talk about you know, the occult. A lot of people around here are into the occult and do see a redeeming value to it. Uh, you know, voodoo is something that th became popular in this area with a lot of immigration from uh, from West Africa, and yeah. also 
I mean, I don't want to say that these people that came up to visit us from New Orleans practice voodoo, but they made us more aware of it. I mean, we, I've had discussions with people before about just the fact that it is still alive and well down in the South and is practiced, and it's not an evil entity as we've no. been taught to believe. No, it's actually about uh, 300 years old. And right? it's, it's very natural. Yes. And, and uh, w- some of the other things that we could talk about in that realm, I mean, last night when I was having the sleep study done, talking to the sleep technician, Damien, who is excellent. He's been excellent all three times that I've been there. Damien? Well, just a coincidence. <laughs> he, he actually does not believe in the paranormal, which I, I thought was a little bit strange for a guy who stays up all night long. But, uh, you know, sleep disorders are something we'd like to talk about in the future, and we may have him join us. But one thing he said he was interested in hearing more about is cannibalism, and not just cannibalism by accident, where it's like, you know, you're crashing the Andes in a plane with a bunch of your rugby-playing buddies, and, you know, you're down to your last meal, so it's either eat Steve or eat nothing. So he's talking about people that actually practice cannibalism. (laughs) I know, poor Steve. He called us earlier. Everybody always picks on Steve. He called us earlier. I feel bad. Well, you may want to check out a particular uh, group of Hindus out in India where they eat the dead after they've been uh, burnt, basically, and put into the Ganges. And and this is something that has a, a redeeming value to talk about. It's not just the stuff of horror movies. So... We welcome all this from you. Just contact us. Visit our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, where you can download the show all week long. We will talk to you next week. Stay spooktacular, everybody. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again.